Section 11 of The Ring and the Book An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Pope We have heard the voices of those who are interested in the story of The Ring and the Book, of those who took part in it, and of the lawyers who pleaded for and against Guido as they happened to be professionally engaged. We now are to hear one speak whose attitude toward all the incidents of the story is that of the impartial spectator. The Pope, to whom appeal has been made to rescue Guido, because, having taken some minor orders, he is entitled to the benefit of clergy, is made, by the genius of the poet, to unfold the workings of his mind as he ponders the case of which he is to be the final judge. His meditation consists of three distinct parts. In the first part, the Pope discloses his method of preparing for a decision on important matters. Like a Hasuerus, he turns to the chronicles of the past for instruction and guidance. He reads, in one of them, an account of Formosus, who was made Pope in 891, and of his trial and condemnation after death by his successor, Stephen VI, and he follows also the successive decisions for and against him until John the Ninth, in the year 898, exact 800 years ago today, pronounced in his favour. So worked the predecessor, now my turn, in God's name. Once more appeal is made from man's eyes to mine. I sit and see another poor weak trembling human wretch pushed by his fellows, who pretend the right, up to the gulf which, where I gaze, begins from this world to the next, gives way and way, just on the edge over the awful dark, with nothing to arrest him but my feet. Guido, he says, catches at me with convulsive force, and cries for leave to live the natural minute more. To this his enemies reply, Leave? None. Put him to death. Punish him now. He, the solitary judge, must either save the wretch or let him drift to the fall. He dallies with the thought, as if reprieve were possible for both prisoner and pope, but he knows this is a mere delusion. The case is over, judgment at an end, and all things done now and irrevocable. A mere dead man is Franceschini here, even as Formosus centuries ago. All the evidence, the Pope tells us, has been read and weighed, and the essential facts evolved, and he simply pauses before he acts. Irresolute? Not I. More than the mound with the pine trees on it yonder. Nor does his sense of fallibility deter him, for he says, Call ignorance my sorrow, not my sin. If, in some after-time, someone, by deeper probing into the mass of facts, should find Guido innocent, he declares, I shall face Guido's ghost, nor blanch a jot. God, he knows, has given him so much, no more, of reasoning faculty, and he is responsible only for the best possible use of it. Indeed, he feels more guilty for discharging a chaplain 
for no cause save that he snuffled when he said mass, than he will if he should make a mistake as to Guido's guilt. For God judges not the result of our acts, but the motives which prompted them. Therefore I stand on my integrity, nor fear at all. But, as the day closes, he knows the two names now snap and flash from mouth to mouth, Guido's and his own. Which of the two will live the longer? He might dip in Virgil, or, better still, consult the sagacious Swede who finds by figures how the chances prove to answer the question. Take the latter. Tell him the condition of the two men. Here is Guido, doomed to death, it is true, but who, like hundreds of others, may escape. He is full of strength, noble, backed by nobler friends, and the community is in sympathy with him. Such an one may bribe the jailer, or break jail, or be rescued by his friends. The other man, himself, is eighty-six years old, one who bears all the world's cark and care, a straw swallowed in his posset, or a stool over which he might stumble, may end his life at any moment. Which of the two will live the longer? Does the Swede say that Guido will? Then he is wrong. Today is Guido's last. My term is yet to run. But suppose the Swede were right. Then how shall he, the Pope, answer for this last act of his before the judge of all? He will not answer that question in words, for words hide more truth than they show, nor will he answer as Pope. He will answer as Antonio Pignatelli. Thou, not Pope, but the mere old man of the world, supposed inquisitive and dispassionate, wilt thou, the one whose speech I somewhat trust, question thee after me, this self, now Pope, hear his procedure, criticise his work? The second part contains the judgment which, as Antonio Pignatelli, he passes upon all the characters in the poem, and first upon Guido. The Pope recalls the conditions of his life and declares that he has a sound frame and a solid intellect. He has had, indeed, to struggle with the temptations incidental to the lot of one who, born with an appetite, lacks food. But these need not have proved so much a stumbling block as a stepping stone. To help him, he had a traditionary name, choice companionship, and conversancy with the faith. But he has used the church to aid his selfish purpose. He is a religious parasite and accepts sacred duties to avoid the consequences of his iniquity. The honourable name he bears does not enlarge his nature. He grows more unworthy of it. He seeks not to live up to it, but to live by it. Test him by his last act, the marriage, and in it can be seen that not one permissible impulse moves the man from the mere liking of the eye and ear to the true longing of the heart that loves. No trace of these, but all to instigate is what sinks man past level of the brute whose appetite, if brutish, is a truth. All is the lust for money. He then reviews his course of conduct 
towards the Comparini and Pompilia, and shows how he tried to drive his wife to ruin, and how, when that failed, he devised the letters. False beyond all forgery, not just handwriting and mere authorship, but false to body and soul they figure forth, as though the man had cut out shape and shape from fancies of that other Aretine to paste below, incorporate the filth with cherub faces on a missile page. Caponsacchi's intervention saved him from crime, and the courts, by their decision, did the same service for him. The way was now open for him to escape from his past, though as by fire. But, the Pope says, Guido refused to learn his lesson. The birth of his son taught him only a new way to get money. All that he could see was the gold in his curls, and that, if Pietro and Violante and Pompilia were out of the way, the money would belong to the child, and the child would be in his keeping. Knowing this, he called four peasant labourers, and, with them, went to Rome to commit the profitable crime. Everything seemed to conspire to favour his purpose, and he might have escaped from Roman territory and laughed in Arezzo at its officials if he had not forgotten to secure the permit, to be had for the asking, to hire a conveyance. Perhaps, the Pope thinks, he cursed his omission, and yet it was the mercy stroke that stopped the fate, for his companions had planned to murder him because he had not paid them, and would have done so, had they not been arrested before they could carry out their purpose. The Pope then depicts some of the minor characters of the poem. Of the Abate Paolo, the older brother of Guido, he says, This fox-faced horrible priest, this brother brute, who trims the midnight lamp and turns the classic page, and all for craft, all to work harm with, yet incur no scratch. He refers to Girolamo, the younger brother, as one in whom he discerns a new distinctive touch, nor wolf, nor fox, but hybrid. Words seem too feeble to describe the mother of Guido, unmotherly mother and unwomanly woman that near turns motherhood to shame, womanliness to loathing. And he calls the four companions these God-abandoned wretched lumps of life. Then we have the Pope's opinion of the governor and of the archbishop. With the former he can do nothing, but of the archbishop he says, significantly, With thee at least anon the little word. The Pope's impression of Pompilia follows in one of the noblest and most beautiful passages of the whole poem. First of the first, such I pronounce Pompilia, then as now, perfect in whiteness. Stoop thou down, my child, give one good moment to the poor old Pope, heart sick at having all his world to blame. Let me look at thee in the flesh as erst, let me enjoy the old clean linen garb, not the new splendid vesture. Armed and crowned, would Michael yonder be, nor crowned, nor armed, the less preeminent angel? Everywhere I see in the world the intellect of man, that sword, the energy his subtle spear, the knowledge which defends him like a shield. Everywhere. But they make not up, I think, 
the marvel of a soul like thine, Earth's flower she holds up to the softened gaze of God. It was not given Pompilia to know much, speak much, to write a book, to move mankind, be memorized by who records my time. Yet if in purity and patience, if in faith held fast, despite the plucking fiend, safe like the signet stone with the new name that saints are known by, if in right returned for wrong, most pardon for worst injury, if there be any virtue, any praise, then will this woman-child have proved, who knows, just the one prize vouchsafed unworthy me, seven years a gardener of the untoward ground I till. This earth, my sweat and blood manure all the long day that barrenly grows dusk. At least one blossom makes me proud at eve, born mid the briars of my enclosure. Still, oh, here as elsewhere, nothingness of man. Those be the plants, embedded yonder south to mellow in the morning, those made fat by the master's eye, that yield such timid leaf, uncertain bud, as product of his pains. While, see how this mere chance-sown, cleft-nursed seed, that sprang up by the wayside neath the foot of the enemy, this breaks all into blaze, spreads itself, one wide glory of desire to incorporate the whole great sun it loves from the inch height whence it looks and longs. My flower, my rose, I gather for the breast of God. This I praise most in thee, where all I praise, that, having been obedient to the end, according to the light allotted, law prescribed thy life, still tried, still standing test dutiful to the foolish parents first, submissive next to the bad husband, nay, tolerant of those meaner, miserable, that did his hests, eked out the dole of pain. Thou, patient thus, couldst rise from law to law, the old to the new, promoted at one cry, of the trump of God to the new service, not to longer bear, but henceforth fight, be found sublime in new impatience with the foe. Endure man, and obey God. Plant firm foot on neck of man, tread man into the hell meet for him, and obey God all the more. Go past me, and get thy praise, and be not far to seek presently when I follow, if I may. Next to Pompilia, the Pope approves Caponsacchi, he calls him my warrior priest and irregular noble scapegrace, son the same. Perhaps the church had been faulty in attempting to subject such a nature as his to its service. All the qualities he had shown were not given him by the church, but belonged to him already. He finds much that was blameworthy in Caponsacchi, in this youth prolonged, though age was ripe, but he prefers to dwell upon the healthy rage when the first moan broke from the martyr maid. There may, he thinks, have been much rashness shown, but he thanks God for the outcome. Aye, such championship of God at first blush, 
such prompt cheery thud of glove on ground that answers ringingly the challenge of the false knight watch we long and wait we vainly for its gallant like from those appointed to the service he believes that throughout all his warfare he was pure and that the greatness of his temptation had served to reveal in him what was worthy of praise he had done the duty which those who were trained for it failed to do because they were somehow too obtuse of ear through iteration of command for catching quick the sense of the real cry thou whose sword hand was used to strike the lute whose sentry station graced some wanton's gate thou didst push forward and show metal shame the laggards and retrieve the day well done be glad thou hast let light into the world through that irregular breach of the boundary see the same upon thy path and march assured learning anew the use of soldiership self-abnegation freedom from all fear loyalty to the life's end ruminate deserve the initiatory spasm once more work be unhappy but bear life my son last of all the pope refers to the comparini as starved samples of humanity foul and fair sadly mixed natures and so they suffer life's business being just the terrible choice we might well suppose now that all was over and done with not so our pope he is only beginning he asks the question upon what do these judgments of mine rest what light have i from the upper sky to guide me the meditation upon this forms the third part of the pope and extends from line twelve eighty four to line nineteen fifty four he believes that he himself reflects something of the light of god that his poor spark had for its source the sun he has in the christian revelation a tale of god which his heart loves and his reason approves it satisfies the demand of his nature for love in god as nothing else does or can there may indeed be errors in the transmission of the gospel story but these do not concern him the same truth may be revealed under various forms nor does the experience of pompilia who suffers in her innocence and who by what seems an accident barely escapes moral condemnation disturb his faith this life is short and the future may serve to right the wrong nor again does it seriously trouble him that some reject christianity life is probation and there could be no test of our natures if we were arbitrarily compelled to believe if there were no possibility of doubt what really troubles him is that men who accept the truth do so little with it this Aretine archbishop to whom pompilia cried protect me from the fiend would not do so because he feared guido and he threw her back to him as a bone to mumble have we misjudged here overarmed our knight given gold and silk where plain hard steel serves best enfeebled whom we sought to fortify made an archbishop and undone a saint the monk is one whose prayers and fastings may be supposed to have rendered him superior to the fear of the world 
To him, Pompilia came with her story of sorrow, but at the thought of doing anything displeasing to those above him, he shuddered to the marrow, and ended by saying, I break my promise, let her break her heart. And here is the monastery called of Convertites, meant to help women because these helped Christ. They had cared for Pompilia and had borne witness to her pure life and saintly dying days. She dies, and lo, who seemed so poor, proves rich. What does the body that lives through helpfulness to women for Christ's sake? The kiss turns bite, the dove's note changes to the crow's cry. Judge! Seeing that this, our convent claims of right, what goods belong to those we succour, be the same proved women of dishonest life, and seeing that this trial made appear, Pompilia was in such predicament, the convent hereupon pretends to said succession of Pompilia, issues writ, and takes possession by the fisc's advice. Such is their attestation to the cause of Christ, who had one saint at least, they hoped, but is a title deed to filch, a corpse to slander, and an infant heir to cheat? Christ must give up his gains then. They unsay all the fine speeches. Who was saint, his whore? Can it be this is end and outcome? All I take with me to show a stewardship's fruit, the best yield of the latest time, this year, the seventeen hundredth, since God died for man? Is such effect proportionate to cause? And the terror increases, he says, when he sees that men do as well on natural as they do on supernatural reasons. Kaponsaki responds to the call of oppressed innocence. But where are the Christians in their panoply? Slunk into corners. At this, there will be a protest from those who claim that they have left their martyr mark everywhere. True, but they have worked no greater deeds than others have done at an instinct of the natural man. Immolate body, sacrifice soul too. Do not these publicans the same? There is zeal and earnestness, but they are about things far off, like the excitement about the proper term for deity in Chinese. But where is the gloriously decisive change, metamorphosis the immeasurable of human clay to divine gold, we looked, should, in some poor sort, justify its price? If a member of the order of the Rosicrucians could make no more gold by his mystical processes than the vulgar got by the old smelting process, would not we start? If this were sad to see in just the sage, who should profess so much, perform no more, what is it when suspected in that power who undertook to make and made the world, devised and did effect man, body and soul, ordained salvation for them both, and yet, well, is the thing we see salvation? But he himself has faith, and even his doubts have their value. The weakness in a faith may be the source of its strength. So he concludes, I have light nor fear the dark at all. Euripides might claim that he, when the third poet's tread surprised the two, whose lot fell in the land where life was great, and sense went free, and beauty lay profuse, 
I, untouched by one adverse circumstance, adopted virtue as my rule of life, waived all reward, loved but for loving's sake, and, what my heart taught me, I taught the world, and have been teaching now two thousand years. Why, Euripides might ask, should he be blamed, when he attained so long ago, to what men fail now to see, even in the full blaze of the Christian revelation? How shall he answer Euripides? May it not be that our truth has become so true, so much a part of the order of the world, that it no longer requires purity of soul to perceive it, a heroic courage to maintain it? Faith may have become so easy that the most ordinary motives lead men to adopt it. This old faith may need to be broken up in order to resolve itself into a new and living faith. May not the coming age correct the portrait by the living face, man's God by God's God in the mind of man? But such an age must be one of trial and terror. Many will sink in the ocean of doubt. Some, like Pompilia, will do what is right and true just the same. They will distinguish the right by footfeel. Others will say, follow your heart as I did mine. This was the way of Caponsacchi, and it was well, for his heart was right. But the Abate, and those like him, may say, my heart beats to another tune, and live for greed, ambition, lust, revenge. The Pope now imagines that he hears the remonstrances made in Guido's favour, made not in the name of mercy, but of what is called honour. They urge that he need give no reason for a decision in his behalf, except that even minor orders in the church secure one from punishment, he may claim to acquit Guido in the interest of the church, or he may say that culture, the spirit of civilization, demands his pardon. Does he wish, they urge, to end his days condemning a man to death? Will he have it said, as soon as he is dead, scarce the three little taps of the silver mallet ended on thy brow, his last act was to sacrifice a count, and thereby screen a scandal of the church? He hears the voices that demand judgment, and cry, Pronounce then, for our breath and patience fail. To these, the Pope replies, I will, sirs, but a voice other than yours quickens my spirit. Quispro domino, who is upon the Lord's side? asked the Count. I, who write, on receipt of this command, acquaint Count Guido and his fellows for, they die tomorrow. Could it be tonight, the better, for the work to do takes time. Set with all diligence a scaffold up, not in the customary place by Bridge St. Angelo, where die the common sort, but since the man is noble, and his peers, by predilection, haunt the people's square, there let him be beheaded in the midst, and his companions hanged on either side. So shall the quality see, fear, and learn. All which work takes time. Till tomorrow, then, let there be prayer incessant for the five. For the main criminal, I have no hope, except in such a suddenness of fate. I stood at Naples once, a night so dark, 
I could have scarce conjectured there was earth anywhere, sky or sea, or world at all. But the night's black was burst through by a blaze. Thunder struck blow on blow, earth groaned and bore, through her whole length of mountain visible. There lay the city, thick and plain with spires, and, like a ghost shrouded, white the sea. So may the truth be flashed out by one blow, and Guido see one instant, and be saved. Else I avert my face, nor follow him into that sad, obscure, sequestered state, where God unmakes but to remake the soul he else made first in vain, which must not be. Enough, for I may die this very night, and how should I dare die, this man let live? The Pope is called upon to accept or reject the plea of Guido, that because he was in orders, he was entitled to exemption from the penalty imposed by the court. It is in his power to set Guido free, or to send him to the scaffold. The decision of such a case, which actually required only the consideration of a few minutes, occupied hours in the poem. The Pope is an old man of eighty-six, whose life the slightest circumstance might terminate. He wishes to judge this case as if it were his last, and as if his whole life were to be estimated in the light of it. His reading of history has taught him how the estimates of man change from generation to generation. One blames, another praises the same act. How will men regard this last judgment of his? It is not enough for him that he is the head of the church. He will not fall back upon any official excuse for his decision. Antonio Pignatelli, the mere old man of the world, supposed inquisitive and dispassionate, must judge what is done by the Pope. He has looked into this case, has poured over all the documents and pleadings of the lawyers, and has arrived at a conclusion. Still he ponders, and again brings before his mind the persons involved in the murder case. He praises and blames in a way that shows that long experience of life has taught him to read the heart of man, and the reader feels that he has said the last word in the matter. He goes beyond this and seeks to test the reality of the moral and spiritual ideas on which his decision rests. In and through his long meditation, he impresses us as a man of profound conscientiousness, whose opinions were always based upon first-hand knowledge and the deepest reflection. He also reveals himself as a man capable of moral indignation. We feel it throbbing through his review of the career and character of Guido, and of his mother and brothers. In it all there is clearly perceptible a hatred of shams, and cruelty and greed. He has no patience with the convertite nuns who seek to gain money by the vilification of Pompilia who had been entrusted to their care, and we know it will go hard with the Archbishop when he speaks to him anon the little word. But along with his hatred of the wrong go his perception and approval of the good. His whole nature is stirred by the character of Pompilia. He sees in her a revelation of the highest form of humanity. He knows a beautiful soul when he sees it. It might have been expected that he would condemn Caponsacchi, but while he discerns the technical offence of the priest, 
he still more clearly perceives the real character and motive of the man. To him, the impulse of helpfulness was much more important than the violation of priestly etiquette, and the sacrifice of reputation in defence of a woman in peril was worth more than the formal correctness of those who had neglected her appeals. The public, and even the judges of the court who tried Kaponsaki, did not believe his direct and simple statement. To them, it was only a story cleverly told on his own behalf. But the Pope recognises its genuineness, and says, In thought, word, and deed, how throughout all thy warfare thou wast pure, I find it easy to believe. The Pope has what is rarer than conscientiousness, or moral indignation, or perception of reality. He has spiritual courage. Many men have doubts and questionings about the deepest faiths of their souls, but few have the courage to face them resolutely, as does the Pope. Usually they turn their thoughts away from the facts that disturb the repose of their minds and hearts. They are afraid to examine the foundations on which their faith rests. They turn aside from the fact that many acknowledge Christianity and yet act as if they had never heard of it. Still less are they ready to ask themselves why many, who never heard of Christianity, shame its adherents by their conduct and character. They never venture to ask why it is that the deeds prompted by natural instinct are as great and noble as those inspired by Christian faith. These are just the questions which the Pope faces. He will not hide them from sight. He meets them not as a doubter, but as a man whose faith is deeper and stronger than his questionings. He is a man of faith because he has the courage to doubt. His courage goes beyond this. It is clear to him that the old faith is now so easily accepted that it exerts little influence on the practical life. Perhaps, as a result of this, it may be well to break up the long-established and customary order of thought and belief. He shudders at the thought because he sees that many would do worse than they do now if the usual standards should be removed. Some, like Pompilia, might know the right way by the foot-feel, and others might follow the guidance of their higher nature, like Caponsacchi. But how about those who trust to what is lower in themselves and follow it, like Guido and his brothers? Yet, in spite of all his forebodings, he has the courage to believe that even the dissolution of the old order would result, at last, in the establishment of one that would better serve the higher interests of humanity. There is not in all literature and history a nobler example of spiritual courage than this. Then our Pope is independent of all external influences. The suggestion that he may be mistaken in his judgment of Guido, and that later knowledge may show him as really innocent, does not deter him. He knows his integrity, and stands securely upon that. Ignorance is his sorrow, not his sin. He knows that he has done his best, and has acted upon a worthy motive, and for him that is enough. Nothing offends him more than the intimation that people will criticise his action. This only serves to precipitate his final decision. When the friends of Guido are represented as addressing him, and appealing to him on the ground that after he has gone, it will be said that his last act was to sacrifice a count 
and thereby screen a scandal of the church, when they urge him to pronounce his decision, because their breath and patience fail, he does so in a way altogether different from what they had anticipated. I will, sirs, but a voice other than yours quickens my spirit. Quis pro domino? Who is upon the Lord's side? asked the Count. I who write. On receipt of this command, a quaint Count Guido and his fellows four, they die to-morrow. Could it be to-night the better, but the work to do takes time. End of chapter 11